Hello, my name is Edward, and this is episode one of my podcast about PyTorch things. I'm not really sure how this is going to work out or where I'm going to go with this, but for now, the idea behind this podcast is just to, you know, be a casual form for me to talk about, you know, various aspects of the PyTorch project. Um, no particular organization. Today, I want to talk a little bit about how we bind Python to PyTorch. That is to say, um, you know, the whole point of PyTorch is to provide an object called a tensor that people can use. And, you know, to make this uh, tensor object available from Python, we have to do bindings for it. And these bindings are actually quite intricate in some sense. And I want to just explain why it's not as easy as it seems and talk a little bit about like how we actually solve this in the project and some of the work that I've been working on recently. So what are Python bindings? Well, let's imagine that you're trying to design uh, any sort of you know, high-performance computing library that has bindings available from a dynamically scripted language. Um, so if you were just writing a data structure in the language itself, you would probably just define a class for the object in question in the language itself, and that would give you something very reasonable. Now, the problem is, um, you know, when you're writing in interpreted languages like Python, all of the objects need to have a very regular layout. And it means that, you know, when you want to uh, do something that actually needs to be very efficient, that needs to actually have some sort of packed layout, typically the language itself won't give you enough facilities to actually define the exact data layout you need. It's going to be something that you know you have to go to a lower level language like C or C++ to do. So the typical situation for anyone who's writing a language, uh, sorry, a library in the situation is you'll have some sort of data structure. In our case, let's call this data structure a tensor. And in um, and then uh, you want to somehow make it possible for people to access this data structure from Python. So you've got two objects in hand, right? You've got this concept of an object in C++ land or in C land, a struct that knows nothing about Python per se, um, because maybe you also wanted this library to be usable by other people who don't have Python. And then you also need to somehow give a representation, a Python representation that regular Python programs can understand. And sort of this, split, this split where you want it to work both in a Python agnostic context and a Python context is where some of the complexity of binding objects in this way comes from. Now, wait, Edward, you might be thinking, hey, you know, I can bind objects to Python. There's this cool library called PyBind11, and all I need to do is just take my object you know, and wrap it up in this magic class underscore template. And then PyBind11 goes through all the work somehow of, you know, making it possible to actually, you know, turn this object into a Python object. And I, I don't know what it really does, but, you know, something happens. And so I want to talk a little bit about what happens in this case. And actually, when we talk about a type like tensor, we don't actually use PyBind11 to bind it because PyBind11 does something very interesting. It uses a hash map and we don't want to pay the cost for that. So let's talk about what it means to make a type actually available in Python. So we've got some C++ type, we've got some C struct, and we want to make it available to Python. 
So when we're writing some Python bindings, uh, we need to define a Python layout data structure that represents the Python object in question. So remember, Python is an interpreted language. All of the objects have a very regular form. Python is ref counted. So one of the things that every Python object needs to have is a header saying what kind of object it is and what its reference count is. So if you like go and look up your C Python, you know, API notes about how to define a new uh, define a new object, it'll tell you, hey, you know, first to find this header, then you can put in your fields, and then there's a description of the data type you have to do to actually say what the object in question is. Okay, that's cool. So you can like copy paste some code and get this working. And then you have a problem, which is that you've got this Python object, and it's not the same thing as your C struct. So what do you do? Well, you could do something like, okay, a Python object is simply a um, a object that contains the C++ object in question. But this usually isn't really quite what you want because let's say that you have a pre-existing C++ object and you want to pass it to Python, right? Like say I allocated a tensor from C++ and I want to return it from my program and actually have um, you know someone in Python make use of it. If you just put the tensor in the Python object struct directly, well, you need to somehow, you know, move the data over into this new struct layout that's got this header that, you know, Python expects your stuff to have. And you probably don't want to actually move all of the data in question. So, you know, the obvious thing to do in this situation is do an indirection, right? So instead of having um, the entire you know contents of the object stored, um, you'll just have a pointer, right? Maybe a shared pointer to the representation in question. Okay, so that you know lets you construct a Python object, but something very strange will happen if you actually try to run the code in this case. What will happen is um, you pass your object to Python, um, you construct one of these Python objects, you wrap it up, uh, you set the pointer to point to the C++ object in question, and you got this Python object. Then the next time you decide you want to return this Python object, well, okay, um, I need to go wrap up my uh, a pointer into one of these Python objects and return that. Notice something has happened. I've actually returned a new object in this situation so that you know, even though both of these Python objects point to the same underlying C++ object, um, they're two different Python objects. And if I do something like, you know, A is B, you know, the, the test for object identity uh, in Python, uh, Python will just happily tell me, no, they're not the same thing, even though the C++ type is actually the same thing. So usually when we bind um, objects that have this notion of, you know, object identity, you know, usually objects you can mutate, like tensors, for example, um, we want to also preserve this notion of object identity when we bind them to Python. And so PyBind11 lets you bind arbitrary objects to Python, and it also preserves object identity. And the way it does this is it maintains a giant hash map of all the C++ objects you've sent through it so that the next time you send the same C++ pointer through it, it can look it up in the hash table and say, oh, this is the Python object that I used last time. Let me just return that again.
And this is how everything bound with PyBind 11 is going to work. Okay, is this setting off performance alarm bells for you? Because it is for me. And it, this is kind of not actually, you know, this is not that fast. And if you um, really care about making things fast, you don't actually want to bind your objects this way. You want something cheaper to actually implement um, this. You want, for example, to just be able to dereference a field on your object to get the Python object in question. And so this is what we did for tensor. So for tensors, we don't maintain a hash map mapping an, a given tensor to its Python object. Instead, we have a field on the tensor object, and this field simply points to the Python object in question that we want to return. So if I want to pass a tensor from C++ to Python, I just read out this field. If it's not null, then I've, there's a Python object, and I'll just return that directly. If it is null, that means it's the first time I'm actually sending this tensor to Python, so I can just go ahead and allocate one of these Python objects, as I would have done before, and then I actually you know, get this object in Python in this situation. So that you know works OK. and um, uh, remember that even though, uh, you know, allocating a new object and then setting it to the tensor seems very thread unsafe, all of our Python interactions are protected by the global interpreter lock. So actually, you know, Python takes care of all the synchronization for us. So this works decently well. And it's what we do. One thing that um, you have to be careful about is this pointer that the tensor object has to the Python object is non-owning. Because remember, the Python object needs to keep the tensor, C++ tensor live, right? So it has a strong reference uh, from Python to C++. If the C++ object also had a strong reference to the Python object, you'd have a reference loop. And that's bad, because when you have a reference cycle in, uh, uh, in a ref counted language, um, the result will never actually ever get deallocated. So strong reference from Python to C++ because you know if you've got a Python object, you better have a C++ tensor backing it. And C++ tensor to Python is a weak reference. Those of you who are thinking ahead might realize that there is a problem. And the problem is this. Because the reference to the Python object is weak, if I only have strong references to the C++ object and I have no more references to the Python object, then the Python object will actually be dead and it will get garbage collected by the, by the CPython interpreter. So that's not so great. And um, you, know, you kind of are wondering, well, what about this stale PyObject pointer in this case? Well, fortunately, we can actually define what the destructor for uh, Python uh, tensor object should be. So we just say, oh, clear out the pi object field from the tensor when this happens. But this does mean that something very strange uh, can happen in this situation. Namely, if you have a tensor and you send it uh, to Python, and then at some point all the Python references dead are dead, the next time you send it to Python, you will get a completely distinct object. Now, granted, it's kind of difficult to notice when this has happened because, well, the old object isn't around because you promised that you weren't going to have any references to it. But, um, you know, if you, like, for example, took the ID of the object, the ID would be different between the two versions. 
And more importantly, and one of the reasons why I've recently been working on a patch to change this behavior, if you actually had some Python data stored on the tensor, for example, um, all, all objects in Python, you know, you can add arbitrary attributes to them after the fact using um, the underscore underscore dict um, attribute. Well, if you went ahead and added a bunch of these things to the tensor and then expected once you saved it in C++, for example, if you were saving it for backwards, one of the most common cases when we'll save a tensor um, in C++ and it will outlive its Python equivalent, you won't get that information when it pops back out into Python. And we have a bug tracking this issue and people don't really like it, although it's it's you know it's kind of hard to solve a problem like this so next time i want to talk a little bit about how we are going to solve this and it's actually pretty nifty um it's using a trick that um sam gross uh one of the original pytorch developers came up with and i'm uh eager to share it with you next time see ya <laughs>